Welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. We have a tiny anniversary to celebrate today. It's the 10th episode introducing WDA members and their amazing work all over the world. This time we're back in chilly Hobart in Tasmania. My guest today is Dr. Tiggy Grillo. Tiggy wears many hats. She's the Chief Operating Officer of Wildlife Health Australia, the Australian focal point for wildlife health for the World Organization for Animal Health. And she continues to work with them directly. And she is the co-chair of the IUCN CCS Wildlife Health Specialist Group. Fear not, we will take these titles apart one by one and chat about what they actually mean. I'm pretty impressed already. Welcome to the show, Tiggy. Oh, thanks, Kat, for having me. These are great podcasts, so I'm really privileged to be invited to do one with you. <laughs> thanks so much. Um, Tiggy, when did you join the WDA? Well, I think I had a look back at my records, I think about 15 years ago. Um, so yeah, quite when I joined Wildlife Health Australia, I joined WDA and um, it just expanded my family straight away. <laughs> nice. So what's your favourite WDA related memory? Um, well, there's so many and many of them are associated with friendships that I've made over the years and continue to have both within the Australasian section as well as the international WDA family. Um, one one memory does stand out, though, um, from one of my first Wildlife uh, Disease Association Australasian conferences um, here in, in actually in Tasmania, um, when a very well known, well respected, I didn't I didn't know this person well at all. This wildlife health specialist stood up to do their presentation in their in their UGG boots of all things. Um, so I thought, wow, this is pretty relaxed, and uh, this is the organisation for me. Um, but essentially, you know, it's a really wonderful family feel within the Wildlife Disease Association, very welcoming. They encourage new members, student members, um, and they're all so willing, despite how um, well-respected or um, amazing people that they are, all willing to share their wisdom and experiences. Um, and I've also had the pleasure to work on um, one of the WDA uh, committee. So I've been involved in the student awards committee, and that's been a super experience in actually reaching out and meeting people. So I've met lots of students through that process, as lots of as well as lots of members um, who volunteered to judge student awards at conferences. So um, certainly for those of you who are new to the Wildlife Disease Association, um, I'd certainly plug serving on one of the committees um, as, as the student awards committee was really a launch pad for me to meet people um, within the organization and also learn about um, committees and leadership roles. Um, Tiggy, I'm really fascinated by your diverse background. So I did a little bit of research about you beforehand, and um, I learned that you have a PhD in molecular parasitology from Glasgow, and you worked in sea turtle rehabilitation and on the effects of sewage pollution, harbour porpoises in the UK. Before you moved to Australia, um, then you did some teaching in parasitology at Charles Sturt University. And um, since 2009, you have been working for Wildlife Health Australia and now even for the World Organization of Wildlife Health. So I'm really not even sure where to start. Um, this is all super interesting. So let me start at the very beginning of your career. Do you feel like you're still a parasitologist at heart? Well, Kat, um, I, I think probably I still I still love parasitology, and I think it probably provided the basis for a lot of my understanding of wildlife diseases. Sort of, it's complex science, um, and and I just gotta love parasites. Um, 
But I was also extremely fortunate in that the parasitology organizations, both within the UK and Australia, when I was doing that part of my career, are also very family-like, um, very similar to the Wildlife Disease Association. Um, and for example, at my first Australian parasitology conference, um, we did some nematode trading. So somebody brought me some nematodes for my PhD, which was pretty awesome. So I, I've got to love parasites and uh, they're still, um, yeah, they're still within my heart. Um, but now my career has taken me much broader than that. <laughs> um, do you, did you have a clear path in mind that led you to do all these different or have all these different experiences and positions? Well, I wish I could say yes, um, but I didn't actually have a plan at all. Um, look, a, a lot of what, what has happened over my career is I've, you know, some things um, you, you have hurdles, you look for new opportunities and you, and you take those up. But certainly when opportunities have knocked on my door or have been, I've been approached about things, I've, I've given it a go and, and they've actually turned out pretty good and led to, to more things and more horizons that I didn't know that I could do. So if uh, for anybody new in the world of wildlife health, um, if you're unsure about going somewhere new or trying something new, I'd say go for it because it might lead to something even more exciting. Since 2009, you have been with Wildlife Health Australia. Can you tell us a bit more for people who don't know, especially non-Australians, what is Wildlife Health Australia and what does the organization do? Yeah, thanks, Kat. Well, we're um, we're actually a government initiative. We were set up. Um, we we had our twentieth twenty uh, year anniversary um, just last year. Um, so we were set up as a government initiative, and we're the independent coordinating body for wildlife health in Australia. Um, so what does that mean? Well, we we do have a, a mission. Our, our mission is healthy wildlife, healthy Australia, um, and our main purpose is to provide leadership um, through partnerships for national action on wildlife health. And that's mainly to try and ensure we can protect and enhance the natural environment, um, as well as economy, animal and human health. But what, what does that actually really mean? Um, so we, we started out by coordinating um, Australia's national wildlife health surveillance information system. And we do that through partnerships with over 40 government and non-government agencies and organizations. Um, so we work with uh, the states and territories and the, the government agencies, both environment agencies and agriculture agencies. And then we also work with a, a huge range of veterinary clinics who see large numbers of wildlife. So there are eyes and ears on the ground as to what's happening and, and trying to identify, you know, the next, hopefully not emerging event that might emerging disease event that might be um, detrimental. We also use that information to provide input and provide in intelligence and analysis to government and non-government agencies. Um, and we also develop guidelines. We have input into policy. Um, and we have a huge range of fact sheets on our website. So we have some, a great team who develop fact sheets. We have over 140 fact sheets on wildlife topics um, with sort of specifics about wildlife health. Um, And then we also get involved, I guess, through my role as Australia's focal point for wildlife health for the World Organization for Animal Health. Um, we're involved in international reporting on wildlife health um, events that happen in Australia that meet the criteria for global reporting. So we, we do that and we also support um, 
the delegate to the World Organization for Animal Health, Mark Ship, um, by providing him with information to support his role um, where there might be questions relating to wildlife health. So, uh, so we, we do all sorts of things. The best thing is we get to work with amazing people on the ground across Australia. Um, and we have a, an amazing team that we've recently expanded. Um, so yeah, it's a great organization and um, people can sign up to get our newsletters for free. Um, so would encourage that if you're not aware of WHA um, or Wildlife Health Australia, anybody anywhere in the world can sign up. But certainly if you're in Australia and you're involved in wildlife health, it's a great way of keeping in touch with what's happening. That's awesome. And uh, we will definitely provide the link um, to Wildlife Health Australia and to the um, link. Yeah, the link where you can sign up for the newsletter. Great. And um, there's also the Australian Registry of Wildlife Health. How do the organisations complement each other? Well, um, we work closely with the Australian Registry of Wildlife Health, and they're um, a centre of both national and international excellence in, in diagnoses um, in relation to diseases of Australian native animals. So they provide a diagnostic service and they undertake a number of um, in-depth research projects. Uh, and they do that to assist wildlife management agencies um, and try and fill some of those knowledge gaps on free-ranging wildlife and, and their diseases. Um, they, they tend to work predominantly in New South Wales, but they do do diagnostic work for people across, across Australia because they do provide that national um, centre of excellence in pathology. Um, and they also do some work for Parks Australia, um, which is a national body here in Australia. It's actually a national government body. And they're, they're essentially one of our, so I said we, we do wildlife disease surveillance um, for Australia and we coordinate and administer the national database as our organisation and they contribute to that through the work that they do in their pathology focused work. Um, so yeah, they're a key part of the system and one of our um, key points of, and sources of information in terms of expertise. So we work closely with them and um, we're just super lucky to have such an organization in Australia that can complement um, the bigger system. Can you tell us a bit more about the, yeah, some of the main issues in terms of uh, wildlife diseases that have, have emerged in recent times in Australia that um, Wildlife Health Australia got involved in? Wildlife Health Australia gets involved in a variety of different disease events or health issues that might arise um, within Australia. Uh, so nationally, we collect data as part of our surveillance program, and we get between 800 and 1,000 um, disease events reported to us based on the criteria um, for our database. And um, of those, we probably get involved in about 100 each year where we're either providing um, direct advice or facilitating linkage to an expert or um, we, we might end up uh, facilitating um, interagency communication. So actually chairing teleconferences to help people to chat together about the disease event and what needs to be done. Um, and sometimes it ends up, we, we end up doing um, risk assessments or uh, sometimes developing guidelines. Um, so for example, we've been in, involved in a few, um, because we sit on some national committees within Australia, including um, the Consultative Committee for Emergency Animal Diseases, or otherwise known as CCEAD. Um, we've been involved in a few events where there has been a, a novel pathogen actually detected in Australia for the first time. Um, the, the first one that I can think of that comes to mind is when pigeon paramyxovirus um, was first detected in Australia and some domestic loft pigeons in Victoria, and that was in 2011. Um, 
And there was, um, I hadn't, I didn't really realize at the time, but um, we found out very, very quickly because we were asked to find out, you know, what is the potential risk to Australia's pigeons and doves? Um, and I found out for the first time that we have, you know, 22 native pigeon species, pigeon and dove species, and they're very genetically distinct and diverse. Um, and they provide crucial ecosystem services within Australia. Um, so we were pretty worried about them potentially being inf infected with this new disease that was new new to Australia. So they they would never have been exposed before to this disease. Um, but we did do some work um, and identified that perhaps because they're so genetically distinct from you know, your domestic buff pigeon that perhaps they wouldn't be infected. So one of the things that we did as part of that event was was put together a list um, to ensure people were aware of what, what pigeons might be um, of concern. We looked at the area where the pigeons, the domestic pigeons were being infected, and we looked at the species of native pigeons in that area. And we worked with BirdLife Australia to find out about what native pigeons um, how frequently they interact with um, feral pigeons, um, so the domestic loft pigeons that have gone gone rogue. Mm -hmm. um, and so we do, do a bit of that work. And we also raised awareness through our networks to ensure people were aware of the disease and would report unusual sickness or deaths in um, pigeons of, of any sort, as well as birds of prey. So we were also worried about birds of prey because they might feed on either the feral pigeons um, or, or native pigeons that might be infected. So we were actually worried about that. Um, more recently, we got involved with uh, another novel disease that was found for the first time in Australia called Ehrlichia canis. And that's a, a tick-borne disease of docks um, that emerged in 2020. And this has had um, a devastating impact on, on dogs in remote communities in the Northern Territory and in Northern Western Australia. And, and it's now actually considered established here in Australia. Um, so we, again, we provided a representative to that consultative committee on emergency animal diseases. Um, so that's a national committee made up of the Australian government and all the states and territories, and, and they are part of the decision-making process um, when there's an emergency animal disease event here in Australia. What is, um, um, sorry to, to interrupt, what, what is this disease exactly in dogs? I don't think I've heard about it. So, so the main thing that we were worried, or the main thing that was was concerning for 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 Australia's wildlife, was whether or not this new tick-borne disease that impacts dogs could impact dingoes. Um, and so we facilitated some linkage and provision. We provided information essentially to conservation managers, and we got that. Uh, we essentially got a letter signed by Australia's chief veterinary officer and also the chief environment biosecurity officer. So to sort of flag that it was an important thing. Um, and we, we distributed that to conservation managers who have dingo protection under their remit. Um, the main sort of advice or recommendation that came out of the risk assessment to try and ensure that dingoes weren't affected was um, the best way to control the risk to dingoes was to uh, control the disease in domestic dogs so Tiggy, your work sounds really interesting and obviously super essential. And it's great that Australia has such a um, well-organized network looking after wildlife health. Your work now is very different to most wildlife vets um, who are often much more hands-on and in the field, uh, getting their hands dirty. Um, how was that transition for you from, say, yeah, the practical vet or the researcher to um, 
to someone being much more involved with policy and basically behind the desk and doing all the, the networking and connecting experts and other people. Um, yeah, how did you feel about that transition and um, how do you feel about being kind of on the other side now? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I, I I do miss getting out into the field and so definitely try and get out and immerse myself in, in nature at weekends. Um, so go out on hikes and things like that. Um, and, and certainly when fieldwork opportunities arise, and I'm certainly open to offers, I'm <laughs> always keen to go out and um, accompany somebody in the field. And that's really useful for the role I do in that understanding what happens in the practical sense in the field is actually really important to have a good understanding of, of the challenges, because that actually can inform policy or inform guidelines um, and quite often that gets forgotten so certainly try and you know ask questions about it when I, I, I hear people have been out in the field and I sort of ask questions about how that how that goes and what are the practicalities because that's really interesting and important for my role um, the transition happened slowly so I probably um, yeah I've, I've gotten into a rhythm of standing behind a desk all day um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, try try not to think about it too much, but I get to talk to some interesting people. So um, similar to yourself doing these podcasts, um, I get to talk to some amazing people and, and certainly the work that Wildlife Health Australia does and the work that, that I do and, and the team at Wildlife Health Australia do are, are reliant on the people who are out in the field doing the, the hard graft. Um, so yeah, and in the labs, obviously, as well. That's awesome. And I feel um, from my experience, it's much more fun to just accompany someone into the field for, say, a few <laughs> days or a week anyway, right? Instead of being the main person in charge, having to like crawl in the dirt for like months on end. <laughs> so it's actually, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, so it's a lot of pressure for people going out into the, to the field and uh, yeah, lots of good fun. Yeah, and I think the last the last experience was not not super exciting. I was collecting poo samples for avian influenza surveillance, so um, <laughs> we got to visit a very pretty lake. Um, but yeah, just sticking swabs and poo samples. Um, so it's so not not super exciting, but it was pretty awesome to be in the field with the people that I've been corresponding with via email for for many years. Um, so, so to actually see what they do on the ground was awesome. <laughs> That's really cool. And I have to add here, so you're based, as I mentioned at the beginning, you're based in Hobart and you do most of your work remotely, right? Unless you're going into the field with someone. So that's also sounds like a really good arrangement and you can still enjoy nature on your weekends um, and go out there. Yeah. And to, to Tasmania nature. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Tasmania is just um, amazing. And on a, on a, on any day, uh, any weekend, you can look at the map and look at the weather forecast and you can normally find a, a bright sunny place somewhere in Tassie to go and hike. So it's pretty <laughs> awesome. Nice. Although to be honest, for me as a diver, oh, that would be a bit chilly, but um, it's otherwise it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> and um, let's go back to policy. So another hat of yours is the co-chair of the IUCN CCS Wildlife Health Specialist Group. And I had to look this up. SSC stands for Species Survival Commission. What does this group do and what's your role in it? Yeah, look, this group is composed mainly of experts from a wide range of disciplines. So it definitely is not just veterinarians. Um, so we have, you know, um, experts in wildlife health policy, wildlife health social science, um, as well as, you know, parasitologists and virologists and, and people who work in the field. 
Um, and they're selected based on their training experience and leadership in the in the field of wildlife health. Um, and these members provide advice and access to regional information and, and resources. And, and they're mainly there to try and support effective response to local issues, with mainly with a focus on health impacts that relate to conservation of species. Um, so things that might be have a negative impact on, on wildlife population persistence or might be a threat to endangered species. Um, I'd like to add all the members, um, including um, myself and Billy, my co-chair, and Kelly, our amazing program officer, are all volunteers. So, um, yeah, it, it relies on the goodwill and um, willingness of those experts to provide their input into various um, issues and um, events that are happening around the world. So um, the group is composed of experts from from all over all over the world. So that's pretty awesome to eat, meet some pretty amazing people again online through virtual um, mechanisms. But yeah, they they do all sorts of different things. So my role as the co-chair with Billy Koresh um, is mainly to try and um, coordinate our members and how they might be able to provide their input. Um, but we also provide um, IUCN representation to a number of working groups and support the IUCN directly. So if there might be, IUCN might be attending um, a particular uh, convention of parties um, and they might ask for some wildlife health expertise in relation to um, their presence at that convention of parties or a COP, as we call them, um, and we might provide some input to that. Are there any particular issues the group is currently focusing on? Um, look, at the minute, we um, the work of the group is specifically looking at some issues relating to um, CITES. So CITES is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species and Wild Fauna and Flora. Um, and currently, when you want to say there's a wildlife disease event that happens in a country that perhaps doesn't have the full capability they need to do the diagnostic workup on that case and find out why those species are dying, um, then they might rely on um, getting permits, especially if it's a CITES listed species. Um, so that might be you know, like Sega antelope in, in Mongolia, for example, or a CITES listed species. They would need to get permits from CITES to move the diagnostic samples out of Mongolia to another country to help with the diagnostic workup. And that can sometimes take months. Um, and as we know, rapid diagnosis is really important to understand the disease um, quickly so we can inform management of that. Um, and so we can have timely communication and make really appropriate decisions immediately following that, that disease event. So um, there's currently some challenges in, in what we call the, the CITES mechanism for movement of samples, um, specifically for you know, sort of diagnostic purposes, not for research, but for diagnostic purposes when there's a, an event happening on the ground. And so a lot of the work of the Wildlife Health Specialist Group has been trying to find ways of, of um, facilitating that or, or providing input to help change. Um, and CITES is actually, it's a quite a long, long process how CITES works, but they've actually just reinitiated a, a working group to look at this, which will involve people from all across the globe who are interested in this topic to try and come up with new new or more appropriate um, or facilitated mechanisms to try and facilitate this movement issue. Um, so that's that's sort of a it sounds um, 
simple, but it's actually more complicated. And, and so it will take some time to come up with some solutions, but hopefully yeah, the group will come up with some solutions to movement of diagnostic samples. And, and I'll be a participant in that working group moving forward. I can only imagine what, what the difficulties there are, but to be honest, not being in this field at all, but I can really imagine how hard that must be because it's, I know that it's already super hard to get anything, any biological material into Australia, right? Even if it's just a corn cob. So yeah. I can imagine how hard it would be to coordinate internationally across several borders with like different policies and different governments or whatever to, um, yeah, to coordinate, um, a simple transport and all that. So it actually sounds like a huge task, which, um, I'm sure can end up in a rabbit hole. So yeah, <laughs> that yeah. is a, an impressive challenge for sure. And it's, it's funny because, you know, CITES was set up to try and, you know, ensure, um, endangered species weren't impacted by trade. Um, so it's there to protect species. But in this case, it's actually, you know, creating impediments to, to resolving issues that are impacting species in relation to disease. So whilst, yeah, there's a whole bunch of quarantine and other bio, bio um, biosecurity permits and things that might be required as well, um, this is sort of that extra layer for species that are considered endangered. So they're the permits are there in place for a very good reason, um, but trying to facilitate, you know, specific circumstances like a diagnostic investigation and trying to get that done rapidly. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully a solution will come in the next few years. Oh, yeah. Fingers crossed for sure. So last but not least, you're also part of the World Organization for Animal Health, which just last year experienced a name change. So maybe you can briefly comment on that for everyone who hasn't heard about that and um, about your role in that organization. Yeah, so I was pretty fortunate. Um, the World Organization for Animal Health, um, their, their name origins um, were were French. So it was the OIE, and I, I won't try and even try to pronounce the name in French because that'd be terrible. Um, so they did change the name to the World Organization for Animal Health and kept the OIE acronym for many years. And then last year, they transitioned to the new new acronym of, of WOA. We, we refer to it as WOA. Um, and and they're um, in uh, 2020, they initiated a new wildlife health program, um, mainly to help the many member countries that they have um, progress risk management in relation to emergence of, of disease from wildlife or that might impact wildlife. Um, and so they're looking at um, protecting wildlife to achieve One Health is one of their key objectives of their wildlife health framework that they developed in 2020. Um, and they're trying to advocate at an international level for sustainable science um, based on One Health approaches. So when, when I say One Health approaches, I think about um, the One Health high level expert panel have, have developed definition on, on One Health and four words come to mind um, that they sort of highlight, um, which is collaboration, communication, uh, capacity building and collaboration. And they're part of um, the process in terms of One Health is about people talking to experts across multiple disciplines and sectors. Um, so not working in a silo. Um, and so WOA is really looking to advocate at an international level to promote wildlife health um, for the health of humans and, and animals, so domestic species, and also ensure um, 
we, we think about protecting wildlife health for, for the sake of those, those things. So I got involved um, working from Tasmania, the benefit of COVID and working virtually and not being able to travel. So I worked two days a week, um, part-time from Tasmania um, for the Paris headquarters um, for 18 months. And I continue to work on a number of projects um, there, which is pretty exciting. Um, they've expanded their wildlife team. Um, and I was really, really fortunate to be involved in that initiation of that work within, within that organization. Um, there, there's a lot of work going on. We did a info session at the last WDA or the Wildlife Disease Association conference in Madison, Wisconsin last year, which was pretty um, pretty exciting. So hopefully WDA members will be getting to know who WOA is and what they do more. Um, and we're certainly trying to create greater linkages um, between the two organizations moving forward. I can only imagine that um, uh, you touched on this a bit before um, about how to handle um, shipping samples across borders and stuff. And I can only imagine that there must be a lot of frustration involved as well. So you have all those meetings and all those people trying to coordinate um, their their aim, their goals and their, their policies. And um, it's, yeah, I can't imagine this comes without um, frustration, but yet you're so, um, I love it how so you're so passionate about your work and so, um, yeah, so, so much into it. How do you, how do you deal with that? That, um, I feel like this is a challenge, which is probably quite particular to, um, your work and working in policy since, um, well, research and, um, practical vet work comes with other challenges for sure, but particular this, sometimes frustration of bureaucracy and um yeah so many different rules uh, coming together how do you how do you manage that for yourself yeah it's a good it's a good question and it's funny because I um I mean one of the things that I find interesting is finding out about different people's perspectives on a particular subject and that certainly helps to try and untangle or potentially find solutions it doesn't always work um but most people who are passionate and come with different perspectives on an issue are because they're passionate about the issue. So trying to understand that those different perspectives and trying to find common ground, I find um, super interesting and maybe others might find that um, more challenging. Um, and certainly I find it challenging at times and sometimes there, there's situations where there's an impasse and it's really hard to find, find a solution that's actually going to be good for everybody and good for, for wildlife or for the situation that you're trying to resolve. Um, but yeah, I, I try and enter every or conversation and situation and issue with an open mind. Um, I think about, you know, people's perspectives. I have a little note on my computer that says what's what's their perspective, what's the situation that they're dealing with um, there at, because you just don't know what's happening behind the scenes for them and why and what what might be influencing their approach to a particular issue or challenge or, or disease event even. Um, and so, yeah, just trying to think about different perspectives. And I, I find that really interesting. I, I, I find people interesting and, and what they do interesting and yeah, just try and keep an open mind. So um, that's what I do um, and, and love doing it. And uh, yeah, I've got to meet some really, really interesting people and, and learn a lot about myself through the process as well as learn about other people and, and where they come from and and how they make decisions that is awesome um thanks for yeah kind of talking about this it sounds like the classic that using compassion um, makes life easier in really 
every life situation <laughs> even in working with like bureaucracy and policy <laughs> yeah <laughs> but there's also- some great people out there you know they do there's some amazing experts they have really good intentions and they you know sometimes they're there are things that are happening behind the scenes that are yeah, influencing how they have to do their work and and taking that on board and really considering that in trying to identify a solution is really important um so yeah it can be frustrating and could take time and patience is really really important yeah some of us have to do that and, and luckily i i enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome diggy ever last question for you um about your past I know this is this is very different now from what we were talked about before, but I feel like I really wanted to know about this aspect of your past. So you worked on the impact of sewage pollution and harbour porpoises in Scotland. What did you actually find? And how did you, you told me before, so can you briefly share, how did you actually get into that? Yeah, so it's it bringing back memory as well. It was before 2020, 2001, so a long time ago. I just finished my vet degree. I was you know, doing a personal trip to the Isle of Mull in Scotland and went and visited the office, the Hebridean, Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, and chatted to one of their team. Um, and I ended up doing this project, um, which was essentially doing some research, a literature review on what potentially might be the, the impacts of sewage on uh, harbour porpoise. Um, and I say porpoise because that's how we said it in Scotland. So, <laughs> um, so funny, funny way of saying it. So apologies. I can't get, get can't get past, past saying it in my Scottish accent. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so we looked at all the different multitude of risks from chem- chemicals to pathogens um, and identified that there was really a need to enhance baseline information so that we could identify whether or not these things were impacting those populations. Um, but funnily enough, it was potentially the start of my stakeholder engagement um, role, I guess, because one of the things that I had to do as part of the uh, project was to go and talk to wastewater managers across Scotland, understanding their perspectives, where they're coming from, what they understood to be the risks to uh, those wildlife populations from wastewater management. Um, and find out what they were doing to try and remedy those issues. Um, so yeah, it was pretty interesting, and I was really fortunate to be given the opportunity. And it was, you know, as a volunteer-based job, I got asked um, to do it for a very small amount of money. Um, and uh, yeah, it ended up being a very, very fruitful opportunity. And I'm really glad that I got to do it um, and work with some pretty special people doing it. Um, and still in contact with um, the guy who was on their team, who's now in the states. So, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> that is really cool. And I just love the part of the story. You said that you just walked into their office and talked to them and then the, this project came up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I say. Just sometimes opportunities, um, you know, arise and you just have to sometimes jump on them and uh, and go with it. Uh, and I, you know, I knew nothing about this subject area at the time and did just finished finish my vet degree, was interested in thought why not it was really hard at the t- I mean I think now if I looked back to it it would be hard to do um but it, I learned a lot through the process and had a, a really great person who was working with me and was very patient with me as well so I was pretty fortunate I got to work with a pretty um amazing expert in relation to whales and dolphins in Scotland um and then do this work for them which hopefully has been helpful moving forward <laughs> that is awesome thanks so much for being my guest on the show Tiggy I really enjoyed chatting with you thanks Kat it's been a pleasure and look forward to listening to future podcasts from you 
<laughs> Thanks for listening to the Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story in two weeks. Bye for now.